0: The source of the speeches I use here on the Choice Voice podcast comes from a list of the top 100 speeches as compiled by researchers at the University of Wisconsin-Madison and Texas A&M University, among other places. It reflects the opinions of more than 100 leading scholars of public address. My choice of speeches should not be construed to reflect or promote any point of view. They are simply considered great speeches. Of course, the reason you listen to a choice voice varies from an interest in the subject matter and what you might do with it to a general appreciation of a great voice ready to read your commercials, audiobooks, or other voice acting projects. You can ask for more information in the A Choice Voice subreddit on, you guessed it, Reddit. And that, of course, is linked in the show notes. And now, Mr. Frederick Douglass. Today's reading is An Appeal to Congress for Impartial Suffrage, a speech in the 1800s by the well-known Frederick Douglass. A very limited statement of the argument for impartial suffrage, for including the Negro in the body politic, would require more space than can be reasonably asked here It is supported by reasons as broad as the nature of man and as numerous as the wants of society. Man is the only government-making animal in the world. His right to a participation in the production and operation of government is an inference from his nature, as direct and self-evident as is his right to acquire property or education. It is no less a crime against the manhood of a man, to declare that he shall not share in the making and directing of the government under which he lives than to say that he shall not acquire property and education. The fundamental and unanswerable argument in favor of the enfranchisement of the Negro is found in the undisputed fact of his manhood. He is a man, and by every fact and argument by which any man can sustain his right to vote the negro can sustain his right equally it is plain that if the right belongs to any it belongs to all the doctrine that some men have no rights that others are bound to respect is a doctrine which we must banish as we have banished slavery from which it emanated if black men have no rights in the eyes of white men of course the whites can have none in the eyes of the blacks the result Is a war of races and the annihilation of all proper human relations. But suffrage for the Negro, while easily sustained upon abstract principles, demands consideration upon what are recognized as the urgent necessities of the case. It is a measure of relief, a shield to break the force of a blow already descending with violence and render it harmless. The work of destruction has already been set in motion. All over the South, peace to the country has literally meant war to the loyal men of the South, white and black, and Negro suffrage is the measure to arrest and put an end to that dreadful strife. Something, then, not by way of argument, for that has been done by Charles Sumner, Thaddeus Stevens, Wendell Phillips, Jarrett Smith, and other able men, but rather of statement and appeal, for better or for worse— As in some of the old marriage ceremonies, the Negroes are evidently a permanent part of the American population. They are too numerous and useful to be colonized and too enduring and self-perpetuating to disappear by natural causes. Here they are, four millions of them, and for weal or for woe, here they must remain. Their history is parallel to that of the country, but while the history of the latter has been cheerful and bright with blessings, theirs has been heavy and dark, with agonies and curses. What O'Connell said of the history of Ireland, may with greater truth be said of the Negroes, it may be traced like a wounded man through a crowd by the blood. Yet the Negroes have marvelously survived all the exterminating forces of slavery, and have emerged at the end of two hundred and fifty years of bondage, not morose misanthropic and revengeful, but cheerful, hopeful, and forgiving. They now stand before Congress and the country, not complaining of the past, but simply asking for a better future. The spectacle of these dusky millions, thus imploring, not demanding, is touching. And if American statesmen could be moved by a simple appeal to the nobler elements of human nature, if they had not fallen, seemingly, into the incurable habit of weighing and measuring every proposition of reform by some standard of profit and loss, doing wrong from choice and right only from necessity or some urgent demand of human selfishness, it would be enough to plead for the Negroes on the score of past services and sufferings. But no such appeal shall be relied on here. Hardships, services, sufferings, and sacrifices are all waived. It is true that they came to the relief of the country at the hour of its extreme need, It is true that, in many of the rebellious states, they were almost the only reliable friends the nation had throughout the whole tremendous war. It is true that, notwithstanding their alleged ignorance, they were wiser than their masters and knew enough to be loyal, while those masters only knew enough to be rebels and traitors. It is true that they fought side by side in the loyal cause with our gallant and patriotic white soldiers, and that, but for their help, divided as the loyal states were, the rebels might have succeeded in breaking up the Union, thereby entailing border wars and troubles of unknown duration and incalculable calamity. All this and more is true of these loyal Negroes. Many daring exploits will be told to their credit. Impartial history will paint them as men who deserved well of their country. It will tell how they forded and swam rivers, with what consummate address they evaded the sharp-eyed rebel pickets how they toiled in the darkness of night through the tangled marshes of briars and thorns, barefooted and weary, running the risk of losing their lives to warn our generals of rebel schemes to surprise and destroy our loyal army. It will tell how these poor people, whose rights we still despised, behaved to our wounded soldiers when found cold, hungry, and bleeding on the deserted battlefield how they assisted our escaping prisoners from Andersonville, Belle Isle, Castle Thunder, and elsewhere, sharing with them their wretched crusts and otherwise affording them aid and comfort, how they promptly responded to the trumpet call for their services, fighting against a foe that denied them the rights of civilized warfare, and for a government which was without the courage to assert those rights and avenge their violation in our behalf with what gallantry they flung themselves upon rebel fortifications, meeting death as fairly as any other troops in the service. But upon none of these things is reliance placed. These facts speak to the better dispositions of the human heart, but they seem of little weight with the opponents of impartial suffrage. It is true that a strong plea for equal suffrage might be addressed to the national sense of honor, something too might be said of national gratitude. A nation might well hesitate before the temptation to betray its allies. There is something immeasurably mean to say nothing of the cruelty in placing the loyal Negroes of the South under the political power of their rebel masters. To make peace with our enemies is all well enough, but to prefer our enemies and sacrifice our friends to exalt our enemies and cast down our friends, to clothe our enemies who sought the destruction of the government with all political power and leave our friends powerless in their hands is an act which need not be characterized here. We asked the Negroes to espouse our cause, to be our friends, to fight for us and against their masters. And now, after they have done all that we asked them to do, helped us to conquer their masters and thereby directed toward themselves the furious hate of the vanquished, it is proposed in some quarters to turn them over to the political control of the common enemy of the government and of the Negro. But of this let nothing be said in this place. Waving humanity, national honor, the claims of gratitude, the precious satisfaction arising from deeds of charity and justice to the weak and defenseless, the appeal for impartial suffrage addresses itself with great pertinence to the darkest, coldest, and flintiest side of the human heart, and would wring righteousness from the unfeeling calculations of human selfishness. For in respect to this grand measure, it is the good fortune of the Negro that enlightened selfishness, not less than justice, fights on his side. National interest and national duty, if elsewhere separated, are firmly united here. The American people can perhaps afford to brave the censure, of surrounding nations for the manifest injustice and meanness of excluding its faithful black soldiers from the ballot box. But it cannot afford to allow the moral and mental energies of rapidly increasing millions to be consigned to hopeless degradation. Strong as we are, we need the energy that slumbers in the black man's arm to make us stronger. We want no longer any heavy-footed melancholy service from the Negro. We want the cheerful activity of the quickened manhood of these sable millions. Nor can we afford to endure the moral blight which the existence of a degraded and hated class must necessarily inflict upon any people upon whom such a class may exist. Exclude the Negroes as a class from political rights. Teach them that the high and manly privilege of suffrage is to be enjoyed by white citizens only that they may bear the burdens of the state, but that they are to have no part in its direction or its honors. And you at once deprive them of one of the main incentives to manly character and patriotic devotion to the interests of the government. In a word, you stamp them as a degraded caste. You teach them to despise themselves and all others to despise them. Men are so constituted that they largely derive their ideas of their abilities and their possibilities from the settled judgments of their fellow men, and especially from such as they read in the institutions under which they live. If this bless them, they are blessed indeed, but if this blast them, they are blasted indeed. Give the negro the elective franchise, and you give him at once a powerful motive for all noble exertion, and make him a man among men." A character is demanded of him, and here, as elsewhere, demand favors supply. It is nothing against this reasoning that all men who vote are not good men or good citizens. It is enough that the possession and exercise of the elective franchise is in itself an appeal to the nobler elements of manhood, and imposes education as essential to the safety of society. To appreciate the full of this argument, it must be observed that disfranchisement in a Republican government based upon the idea of human equality and universal suffrage is a very different thing from disfranchisement in governments based upon the idea of the divine right of kings, or the entire subjugation of the masses. We'll continue with this speech right after this quick break. Hello, hello, friends. This is a quick break, which I'm putting in the middle of this great speech. For all you advertisers out there, this is where your message goes. I'm talking about that message you have so lovingly crafted to tell the story of your thing. Your magnificent thing. The thing none of us will ever need to live without ever again. This is your chance. Jump on it. Feel free to tone down a bit there, John. Yeah, what he said. Oh, right. Note to self, don't get so worked up, John. For listeners, please pay attention to that when it comes. For now, breathe deeply, give yourself an epic massage, and just enjoy everything. Really, everything. <sighs> now, back to where we left off masses of men can take care of themselves. Besides, The disabilities imposed upon all are necessarily without that bitter and stinging element of invidiousness which attaches to the disfranchisement in a republic. What is common to all works no special sense of degradation to any, but in a country like ours, where men of all nations, kindred and tongues, are freely enfranchised and allowed to vote to say to the Negro you shall not vote, is to deal his manhood a staggering blow and to burn into his soul a bitter and goading sense of wrong, or else work in him a stupid indifference to all the elements of a manly character. As a nation, we cannot afford to have amongst us either this indifference and stupidity, or that burning sense of wrong. These sable millions are too powerful to be allowed to remain either indifferent or discontented, and franchise them, and they become self-respecting and country-loving citizens. Disfranchise them, and the mark of Cain is set upon them less mercifully than upon the first murderer, for no man was to hurt him. But this mark of inferiority, all the more palpable because of a difference of color, not only dooms the Negro to be a vagabond, but makes him the prey of insult and outrage everywhere. While nothing may be urged here as to the past services of the Negro, it is quite within the line of this appeal to remind the nation of the possibility that a time may come when the services of the Negro may be a second time required. History is said to repeat itself, and if so, having wanted the Negro once, we may want him again. Can that statesmanship be wise, which would leave the Negro good ground to hesitate when the exigencies of the country required his prompt assistance? Can that be sound statesmanship, which leaves millions of men in gloomy discontent, and possibly in a state of alienation in the day of national trouble? Was not the nation stronger when 200,000 sable soldiers were hurled against the rebel fortifications than it would have been without them? Arming the Negro was an urgent military necessity three years ago. Are we sure that another, quite as pressing, may not await us? Casting aside all thought of justice and magnanimity, it is wise to impose upon the Negro all the burdens involved in sustaining government against foes within and foes without, to make him equal sharer in all sacrifices for the public good, to tax him in peace and conscript him in war, and then coldly exclude him from the ballot box? Look across the sea, in Ireland, in her present condition, fretful, discontented, compelled to support an establishment in which she does not believe, and which the vast majority of her people abhor, a source of power or of weakness to Great Britain? Is not Austria wise in removing all ground of complaint against her on the part of Hungary? And does not the Emperor of Russia act wisely as well as generously, when he not only breaks up the bondage of the serf, but extends him all the advantages of Russian citizenship? Is the present movement in England in favor of manhood suffrage, for the purpose of bringing four millions of British subjects into full sympathy and cooperation with the British government, a wise and humane movement, or otherwise? Is the existence of a rebellious element in our borders, which New Orleans, Memphis, and Texas show to be only disarmed, but at heart As malignant as ever only waiting for an opportunity to reassert itself with fire and sword a reason for leaving four families of the nation's truest friends with just cause of complaint against the federal government if the doctrine that taxation should go hand in hand with representation can be appealed to in behalf of recent traitors and rebels, may it not properly be asserted in behalf of a people who have ever been loyal and faithful to the government? The answers to these questions are too obvious to require statement. Disguise it as we may, we are still a divided nation. The rebel states have still an anti-national policy. Massachusetts and South Carolina may draw tears from the eyes of our tender-hearted president by walking arm-in-arm into his Philadelphia convention, but a citizen of Massachusetts is still an alien in the Palmetto State. There is that all over the South which frightens Yankee industry, capital, and skill from its borders. We have crushed the rebellion, but not its hopes or its malign purposes. The South fought for perfect and permanent control over the Southern laborer. It was a war of the rich against the poor. They who waged it had no objection to the government while they could use it as a means of confirming their power over the laborer. They fought the government, not because they hated the government as such, but because they found it as they thought in the way between them and their one grand purpose of rendering permanent and indestructible their authority and power over the Southern laborer. Though the battle is for the present lost, the hope of gaining this object still exists and pervades the whole South with a feverish excitement. We have thus far only gained a union without unity, marriage without love, victory without peace. The hope of gaining by politics what they lost by the sword is the secret of all this Southern unrest. And that hope must be extinguished before national ideas and objects can take full possession of the Southern mind. There is but one safe and constitutional way to banish that mischievous hope from the South, and that is by lifting the laborer Beyond the unfriendly political designs of his former master. Give the Negro the elective franchise, and you at once destroy the purely sectional policy, and wheel the Southern states into line with national interests and national objects. The last and shrewdest turn of Southern politics is a recognition of the necessity of getting into Congress immediately, and at any price. The South will comply with any conditions, but suffrage for the Negro, it will swallow all the unconstitutional test oaths, repeal all the ordinances of secession, repudiate the rebel debt, promise to pay the debt incurred in conquering its people, pass all the constitutional amendments, if only it can have the Negro left under its political control. The proposition is as modest as that made on the mountain, all these things I will give unto thee if thou wilt fall down and worship me. But why are the Southerners so willing to make these sacrifices? The answer plainly is, they see in this policy the only hope of saving something of their old sectional peculiarities and power. Once firmly seated in Congress, their alliance with Northern Democrats reestablished, their states restored to their former position inside the Union, they can easily find means of keeping the federal government entirely too busy with other important matters, to pay much attention to the local affairs of the southern states. Under the potent shield of state rights, the game would be in their own hands. Does any sane man doubt for a moment that the men who followed Jefferson Davis through the late, terrible rebellion, often marching barefooted and hungry, naked and penniless, and who now only profess an enforced loyalty, would plunge this country into a foreign war today if they could thereby gain their coveted independence, and their still more coveted mastery over the Negroes? Plainly enough, the peace not less than the prosperity of this country is involved in the great measure of impartial suffrage. King Cotton is deposed, but only deposed, and is ready today to reassert all his ancient pretensions upon the first favorable opportunity. Foreign countries abound with his agents. They are able, vigilant, devoted, the young men of the South burn with the desire to regain what they call the lost cause. The women are noisily malignant towards the federal government. In fact, all the elements of treason and rebellion are there under the thinnest disguise which necessity can impose. What then is the work before Congress? It is to save the people of the South from themselves and the nation from detriment on their account. Congress must supplant the evident sectional tendencies of the South by national dispositions and tendencies. It must cause national ideas and objects to take the lead and control the politics of those states. It must cease to recognize the old slave masters as the only competent persons to rule the South. In a word, it must enfranchise the Negro and, by means of the loyal Negroes and the loyal white men of the South, build up a national party there, and in time, bridge the chasm between north and south, so that our country may have a common liberty and a common civilization. The new wine must be put into new bottles. The lamb may not be trusted with the wolf. Loyalty is hardly safe with traitors. Statesmen of America, beware what you do. The plowshare of rebellion has gone through the land, beam deep. The soil is in readiness, and the seed time has come. Nations, not less than individuals, reap as they sow. The dreadful calamities of the past few years came not by accident nor unbidden from the ground. You shudder today at the harvest of blood sown in the springtime of the Republic by your patriot fathers. The principle of slavery, which they tolerated under the erroneous impression that it would soon die out, became at last the dominant principle and power at the South. It early mastered the Constitution, became superior to the Union, and enthroned itself above the law. Freedom of speech and of the press it slowly but successfully banished from the South, dictated its own code of honor and manners to the nation, brandished the bludgeon and the bowie knife under congressional debate, sapped the foundations of loyalty, dried up the springs of patriotism, blotted out the testimonies of the Fathers Against Oppression, padlocked the pulpit, expelled liberty from its literature, invented nonsensical theories about master races and slave races of men, and, in due season, produced a rebellion, fierce, foul, and bloody. This evil principle, again, seeks admission into our body politic. It comes now in shape of a denial of political rights to four million loyal colored people. The South does not now ask for slavery, it only asks for a large, degraded caste, which shall have no political rights. This ends the case. Statesmen, beware what you do. The destiny of unborn and unnumbered generations is in your hands. Will you repeat the mistake of your fathers, who sinned ignorantly, or will you profit by the blood-bought wisdom all around you, and forever expel every vestige of the old abomination from our national borders, as you members of the 39th Congress decide, will a nation be peaceful, united, and happy, or troubled, divided, and miserable? Thanks for that read today, John. Next week, we hear a speech made by Mohandas Gandhi, which was a bit less popular than might be thought. Join us. This podcast and our other podcast are productions of Little Red Hen Industries. The supporting cast who helps me bake the bread includes Techno King, John C. Brandy, Alter Ego, Doubting Thomas, Fact Checker, A Small Brown Beef Animal, Seriously, Tiny. Facts are important but are also easy. Social Manager, Abraham Lincoln, Media Expert, Augustus Caesar, Psychologist, William James, Sound Designer, Adobe's Creative Suite, Spanish Consultant, Cameron J.K. Brandy. French Consultant, Leah, The Do Your Own Research Lady, Videographer, Eto Monkoshki, Audio Props, Les Paul, Inspiration, Many Podcasts and Other Sources, and of course, Napoleon Hill. We also have websites, and you can subscribe to both podcasts. You can even send us a video, audio, or text message. But of course, you'll have to head to the show notes, either on your phone or on the web, to get the links and stuff. And all those clickable links are in the show notes. And before we forget, the artificial intelligence or AI voices that you hear in our work are offered up by Google, Amazon Polly, and OpenAI like we say in the show notes. They don't sponsor us yet but we love what they do and we just love what AI can do when lovingly crafted. Finally, you can find us on ProtMatch.com, matchmaker.fm pod booker and podcast guests where we consider guests and consider guesting on other people's shows and really finally the music for our pods comes from cute by ben sound and from piano background by nick simon adams as well as from ai musenet the sound effect credits go to jackson academy ashmore Canucci G, dr jekyll joe Payne, everything sounds mk play more stories erh sand emotions big pickle 51 and just kidding Yes, that's his or her name. All on freesound.org. Also, languages are the bomb. Paul.